I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to comedian Chris Gethard. All I've ever done is worked hard and tried to be honest and tried to connect with an audience who's looking for the type of values I bring to my work. And I don't ever want to apologize for that. I'd rather connect with 200 people who identify with the idea of being earnest or vulnerable or sad at times than a football stadium full of people who don't. Chris Gethard grew up in West Orange, New Jersey, and is a proud Jersey guy. Known for a confessional style of comedy, he's never one to shy away from inserting very personal stories into his work. Yeah, he's a real salt-of-the-earth guy, too. He definitely has a Bruce energy. He minds this personal history in Jersey in his book, Lose Well, where he emphasizes the importance of failing and uses some hilarious and dark episodes from his own life to illustrate the point. This is kind of a defining quality in his work. In his HBO special, Career Suicide, Chris details his own struggles growing up with mental health issues, and it's pretty groundbreaking in the way that it destigmatizes medication. It's alarmingly honest, and, and it's really more of a one-man show in the vein of Spalding Gray than a comedy special. The foundation of it all is personal biography. He strikes me as an artist who's really actively practicing empathy, which is not necessarily something that comedy usually brings out in people. There's kind of always been a dividing line in comedy, and it feels especially present right now, between sincerity and irony. And Gethard may be the spokesman of sincerity. His podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, further blurs the line between comedy and drama. Yeah, he tweets out a phone number, a stranger calls it, and he has to talk to them for an hour straight. Since he has a background in improv at the Upright Citizens Brigade, Chris is able to navigate these calls into some pretty intense territory. Gethard's career is hard to define. You might know him as an actor on The Office, Broad City, or in the film Don't Think Twice. And we'd be remiss not to mention maybe his most legendarily hard-to-define work, the public access project The Chris Gethard Show, which ran just shy of 10 years across multiple platforms. And he's constantly touring and performing stand-up around the country. He's a very busy guy. But he took some time to sit down with Joe recently here in the studio. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I was just reading your book, Lose Well, um, and something that I found really universal about it is just that middle school really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Junior high school was the, probably the worst stretch of my life. Yeah. What about this time period really helped set you on a path towards a life in performance and comedy, do you think? Well, you know, the surface level answer is that I look like I do and my last name spells out the words get hard. So as far as feeling like a little bit of an outsider looking in, I think it, the the bar was set pretty high around that age. And I think a lot of comedians and a lot of performers are people who maybe feel that way a little bit, like they're on the outside looking in. And I kind of have this theory that maybe when you're when you feel that way, you spend a lot of time analyzing the world in front of you and trying to figure out what it is that's not clicking and therefore you can comment on it from the perspective of a comedian and say, yeah, it was a... It was, it was rough. It was a rough time. That that stretch of my life was, uh, I went to a school that was pretty poorly run looking back on it. The kids were kind of on their own, and I walked out of it with a chip on my shoulder for sure. And was there a specific moment from this time period where you kind of were able to dive into performance? Oh, of course. Yeah, you're 
you're leading me towards that particular story. I thought we were talking about the more broad sociological aspects. Yeah, so I, uh, when I was in eighth grade, a couple friends of mine convinced me to try out for the school musical because they lived on the other side of town. And, you know, when you're spread out like that, you don't really get to hang out that often. So they were like, yeah, just do this. We'll get to hang out all the time. And I joined up and inexplicably got like a non-chorus part. I thought I was just going to be in the chorus, but I got cast as uh, the part of Randolph in Bye Bye Birdie, which is the little brother in the main family. And if you know the show Bye Bye Birdie, it's about this Elvis-like guy coming to a small suburban town and everybody's flipping out. And the kid who played by, uh, Conrad Birdie, like the kid who played Elvis, he's just Elvis, right? Like they just couldn't get the rights to the name. The kid who played Elvis was my friend Danny Tobia, and he was the coolest. He was the coolest kid, and he got in a fight with the director and left. And I had the whole show memorized because I was a nerd. And last minute they switched, and I became Conrad Birdie. And uh, I just rewatched the video of it recently because I was working on the book and telling that story, and it's really cringy. I was a solid foot shorter than most of the girls who were flipping out about me and I had a very very uh, regrettable bowl haircut and very weird outfits and the the stage moms who did makeup just kind of like threw a bunch of mascara and rouge on my prepubescent head and marched me out there and I got big laughs though I remember getting big laughs and that I, I I'll never ever forget the first night that I went on stage and did that because I remember so well that the like I remember they being aware, oh, they're laughing at me. Like a kid who looks like I did. Like people shouldn't be fainting with, you know, sexual uh, overwhelming uh, want. No one should be doing that to me, a doughy-faced little boy who looks like I'm eight years old. So I understood I was being laughed at, but I loved it. And when the curtains closed, I remember just standing on the stage, just kind of like jumping up and down and spinning in a circle with all this energy. And that was really out of character for me at that age to show that much sort of just energy and enthusiasm. So definitely sort of got thrown into the shark pit as far as being a public performer with this situation that was very sort of weird and in a way almost sort of like a performance art take on this popular musical. And I think you can look at a lot of the stuff I've been interested in since, and it's it's probably trying to recapture that feeling of making an audience just go, what are we looking at right now? Why... Why is this funny to us? This feels like it's not reality as we know it. Uh, and I know you you talk really openly about your about dealing with anxiety in your performance. As a kid, you know, dealing with anxiety, it feels sort of counterintuitive to connect so much with such a public act. Yeah. Yeah, it's something I've thought about a lot and the best I can say is that it never felt confusing to me. Even though it's been consistently, people have said like, oh, for someone who is so often scared to have a conversation or so often apologizing to everyone for everything, it's kind of an odd choice to get on stage. But the best I can say is that when I am on a stage, that's when I actually feel the most comfortable. And I, I might actually say the most powerful. Like when I have a mic in my hand and everybody therefore is honor bound to listen and I can get a room full of people laughing, I always feel like on some level, those people are, their laughter is saying to me, oh, we get it, we understand, we feel that way too. And I hope that gives the audience a lot, and I know it gives me a lot. So, yeah, it's it's funny. The Probably the, 
you know, if I, like, last night I did one stand-up set, so it was 15 to 20 minutes, and those were definitely the 15 to 20 minutes where I felt most confident, comfortable, like myself, in my own skin. Yesterday was a really hard day for me, actually, filled with a lot of bad feelings and self-doubt, which I still suffer from all the time, and that 15 minutes on stage, which for most people would be the most terrifying 15 minutes they could imagine, is for me the only 15 minutes where I feel sane. Yeah, you write about it in the book, too. There's this part where you say that, you know, something about you use performance as an opportunity to kind of take control of certain things and take control of situations where otherwise you you may not have had that kind of power and it gives you and affords you that kind of power. Yeah, I mean, I'm someone who legitimately gets interrupted all the time, ignored all the time, just like very I know what cloth I'm cut from. Like you see me in a, a line at a bodega and like, People liberally feel okay about just cutting me in line. And I say that just to be like, I'm, I am, I, I have always lived this sort of Charlie Brown life. Like even the other day I, I did a show in London and I flew back and my seat was directly next to the toilet. It's a seven and a half hour flight. And like friends of mine tell me, they'll be like, oh, why are you still so like nervous about your career? You've like, you're over the hump and you're a little bit famous now. And I'm like... If that is true, it doesn't change the fact that I get just like jammed in next to the toilet and big timed by everybody all the time. So performing is certainly a way for me to grab onto some sense of agency and sort of have a little bit of a voice once or twice a day. Sorry, I feel like this is becoming a bummer. That's <laughs> on brand for me. So yeah. Was there a moment when you realized that, you know, looking back and mining some of these stories from your youth or from any part of your life, really doing an, kind of an autobiographical approach to comedy. Was there a moment when you realized that this was going to be kind of the next step in your career? There's a few. There's a few that stand out. Um, one that one that I think about a lot is that I came up as an improviser and came up at the Upright Citizens Brigade during an era when they were... It was just kind of like a success factory. Like, you'd see people getting on sitcoms all the time, students of mine who I taught in improv classes, you know, the two guys who I felt closest to coming up, one of them wound up on The Office, one of them wound up on SNL, and it just wasn't happening for me. And I realized that I'm not strong at characters and I'm not strong at voices and these things that these actors do, but what I am good at is being myself and letting people see how I feel on stage. And there's a show called Cat at UCB that's been running on Sunday nights for decades now. And they started having me go up and do the storytelling part instead of the improvising part. And that really was a thing that made me realize, oh, I'm I'm good at being myself. Mike Birbiglia told me recently, he's been a mentor to me over the years, and he, he told me recently, he's like, you know, you're the only person to come out of UCB who's known for being yourself. Everyone else is known for playing actors. So I think sort of as I as I maybe fell out of love with improv was when I started connecting to this idea of maybe I can just be me. Maybe that's the most interesting thing I have to offer. I'm never going to be as funny as my pal Bobby Moynihan, but I can be more honest than anyone else I know. I'm comfortable just sort of eating it in public and letting people see the the rough edges and the dark sides. And I think if I'm good at anything, it's sort of taking it on the chin publicly and letting everybody experience that with me and seeing what happens on the other side of it. When you were at UCB, um, you had something called the Magic Bus of Stories. Yes. That was that kind of built out of the ASCAT experience that I said. So I started started telling these stories on, on stage, and people started flipping out. And 
things started happening where this group of uh, kids at the time, they were freshmen at NYU. They all started showing up. And one day, I go into the green room, and some of the staff at the UCP is like, hey, there's all these kids out there, and they have T-shirts. with They drew your face on them. They drew your name on them. And I was like, oh, what's going on? And I realized that, you know, I was up there with all these legitimate celebrities. And, I mean, these shows would be Amy Poehler, Seth Meyers, uh, Jack McBrayer, Jason Sudeikis, and Chris Gethard. And I've realized I was becoming kind of like the people's champ. Like, they were rooting for me so hard as this, like, guy right on the fringe of this thing. And these kids, I thought they were messing with me. I thought it was a joke, and I, th- I thought they were making fun of me, and it actually hurt my feelings. And uh, they said, no, we really love your stories. We want to see the places in New Jersey where they took place. So I kind of called their bluff. This was all on Facebook. And I was like, all right, yeah, let's rent a bus and go thinking it would be the end of it, and they go, all right, yeah, we'll back down. But no, they they called bus companies, and <laughs> it sold out instantly. And, I mean, like, within, like, 20 minutes, we'd sold out, like, 60 seats on a bus. So people could follow me around New Jersey, and I could be like, uh, so, yeah, so this is the basement. This is uh, this is the basement of my old. I lost my virginity right here on a couch. Used to be here. And we're, like, in the basement of the house where I grew up. And the guy who owns the house now, I'll never forget, he's in the back of the room. And I tell that story, and he just goes, come on, man. Come on, man. And, like, it was this very odd day where I realized that something had broken through and... I was maybe underestimating the validity of what I had stumbled into, and a lot of these these younger kids at the time were genuinely rooting me on, and it wasn't a joke, and that I had maybe fallen into some sort of performance style that was was a little bit hard to define, and that was kind of on the edge of storytelling and performance art, but that nobody else was doing, and it got a bunch of press. It was It was the first thing I ever did that anybody kind of cared about, outside of just the tiny little improv scene and it was life-changing it was life-changing and i'm still in touch with a lot of those people i keep my eye on them one of the people who was in that early wave of my supporters actually just was cast on saturday night live which is such a such a fascinating thing to see to have been around so long where it's like oh one of the people who was you know rooting me on in 2009 10 years later he gets cast on saturday night live it's 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 really beautiful it's a really beautiful full circle thing to see. Yeah, I feel like mentorship and this mentor-mentee approach has been pretty consistent across your career. Um, People often talk about you discovering or nurturing a lot of young talent that's gone on to great things. I'm really proud of it. I'm really, I remember what it felt like to be this guy renting a bus, feeling like, man, this is really weird. And I doubted it. I would do these performance art sort of projects that were, just kind of experimental. And then I'd get embarrassed and be like, well, my friends are on The Office. I'm doing a weird show where we shoot each other with paintballs in front of a crowd. And I'd get really embarrassed. And I remember that feeling of being alone in it, feeling like no one else was doing it. So I remember a lot of the people who mentored me and how much that helped. And uh, I have always felt honor-bound when the other young bucks come along and I see some of the other people who are trying the strange stuff. I always reach out, and if there's any world in which I can lend a helping hand, I do. And, you know, my my TV show um, that kind of was born out of this whole attitude eventually went to cable, and I was able to give a lot of people their first job. Have you intellectually thought of what you're doing as community building? Yeah, I mean, I was aware that was a major element of it. Even if you look at when my, my show was on public access, which was such a game changer for me, 
everyone on the crew had a nickname. We all hung out. Everybody got sucked into being on camera. It's just, I, you know, again, I hate to be depressing, but for most of my life, I've felt like someone who did not have a community. So I had to kind of go and build my own. We should definitely talk about this foundational piece of your career, the Chris Gethard Show, and how it started. I mean, (laughs) It goes back 10 years now, which I was hoping to keep it alive for 10 years. I thought that would be a nice round number, but it's very much within the sort of story of the show and the ethos of the show to to crap out at nine, to come up (laughs) one short. That's kind of everything you need to know about the show, is that we were hoping to make it to 10. Nope, got canceled at nine. Uh, The show started at UCB. Um, I had been doing a lot of the storytelling stuff and a lot of the odd stuff, and the artistic director there, I sat down with him at one point, and I I give him so much credit because, you know, I said, I kind of want to do a talk show live on stage, and he was like, well, that's been done to death. Everybody's done it, but he's like, I want to give you a slot. You do a talk show that reflects the fact that you rent buses and have done all this other, like, I once had a show where comedians were boxing each other on stage, like... Just stuff that was just weird, man. And he's like, just own all that stuff. And that's what you do best and do it. And it it blew up and it's it's kind of, you know, I, I don't want to like buy into too much legend building or mythology building, but I can look back now that it's over and realize like there was just some stuff that happened that was magic. Like very early into the run of the show, I went on Twitter and, and this was in uh, 2011, did we start it? This was around 2011. Yeah, the bus tour was 2009. And uh, it was in Twitter's early days is the point. And people hadn't really figured it out. And I asked Diddy, Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, if he would come do my show. And inexplicably, he was like, yeah, what's your show? I'll come do it. And everybody flipped out. And I think it was written about as one of the early things where people were like, oh, Twitter's an actual tool that can connect people across boundaries. Like, I should not have access to Sean Combs in any world, especially back then let alone now. And he just came and did it. And it it, it, it became this thing where he, he it took him 13 months to actually show up. And every month people thought he was coming so that the show would sell out. And then the stuff we were doing, the people I was showing off as this hot crowd would show up, it, it became this movement. And we switched over to public access TV as I thought the show was dying out. And guy I knew from, I had taught him in an improv class. He was like, I work at the public access station. You should come do it. Your show would be great on public access. And at first I was like, oh my God, like that's kind of cringy to be told you would be great on public access. And then once I got over the ego, I was like, man, they have a three camera studio. They stream it all online. You can do the show live. And it just, uh, I would say the first four or five months on public access were really difficult, hard to push through, hard to find an audience. And then when things clicked, it just became this sort of gang of renegades beaming out comedy to the world that often didn't even work. But then we'd start getting calls. I remember we'd, first it was just we'd be getting prank calls from within Manhattan. And then all of a sudden we're getting calls from Jersey. Now we're getting calls from Connecticut. Now wait, hold, And then I remember like the first night we got a call from Canada. It was like, what? And then all of a sudden within a year or two we're getting calls from Sweden, from Brazil... We, had, we we sold a pilot of the show to Comedy Central. Kids flew, a guy flew from Honolulu, a girl flew from Brazil, people flying from San Francisco just to attend our pilot taping, our studio audience pilot taping. Like, I started to realize there were a lot of outcasts spread all over the world who came to view this weird little show as representing them in the same way that I remember 
punk rock bands making me feel that way. I mean, we had people from all of Australia. Someone once told me they were watching the show on an iPad in the back of a convertible in Dubai. <laughs> once got an email from someone who said they had to hack a firewall in China just to watch our show. I'm like, committing crimes that the Chinese government would be mad about just so you can see a show that's literally at times like me laying on a table shirtless having a burrito built on my belly. Like, this is not... There's no world in which I would claim that this is high art, but something about the attitude behind it actually maybe did attain that status for a, a certain segment of the population. And you were literally dragging the studio gear in and out of your car. Oh, it was for... pathetic. It was, I had a, had a Ford Fiesta. First, it was a Nissan Sentra. At some point, I, I, I upgraded um, to Ford Fiesta. But point being, tiny trunk of the car and like, any prop we had had to live in the trunk of my car. There's no storage space of public access. So I would, every Wednesday night, it almost became this weird ritual for me. It almost became this weird, and this is like the Irish Catholic in me that feels like you have to have a ritual to punish yourself in order to earn anything. There's many psychological layers, but I'd park the car on 59th Street and 11th Avenue, and, you know, the closer I could get to the studio, the better, but very often I'd be around the block, and I'd have, you know, we had a big banner made out of canvas. We had a stand for the banner. We had a big suitcase full of all sorts of wires and hard drives and stuff. And then on top of that, any props we had for the show, which with our show, it would be like, okay, I, now I have four Nerf guns and a bag of, you know, pardon my French, double-headed dildos. And it would be me with all this stuff balanced on my back, dragging the suitcase behind me and like, you know, 50 60 pounds of gear on my own back and I'd schlep it up to the studio and sometimes it would be funny because I'd pass kids who were like killing time in the neighborhood who were like we're coming to the show you know there'd be somebody who'd be like I've been watching your show for years and I took a bus from Michigan and I'm like yeah this is me dragging all this junk up the sidewalk myself and it felt like I'm never gonna phone it in I'm never gonna ask people to put in work that I'm not willing to put in and Every week, my crew will see me sort of stumble in with all this stuff on my own back as this sign that I know we're in it together, and it's not about me, and it's not about getting my name out there. It's not about my ego getting stroked. It's about us really trying to do something together that is allowed to fail and that doesn't prescribe to anything that the mainstream would push upon us and that in fact, sometimes often didn't make sense intentionally or failed ambitiously, almost in a way to sort of throw up a middle finger specifically to the idea of mainstream comedy. And then, of course, we eventually got picked up by cable, which was very, very nice. But we were, uh, you know, it was, it, it, I look back and realize that the story of the show is the show of a public access studio. And then in very, stereotypical fashion that the pressure of being on a network and their mandates did eventually I think squeeze a lot of the the attitude out of it and that's when I knew it was time to time to end it they kind of called me up and they said we're willing to keep going if you are majorly down to restructure things and I said no we gotta let it we gotta let the legend of this thing be what it is I'll be mad at myself forever if I if I totally water down what I do in the name of money can't do that yeah, I mean, it reminds me a lot of going to underground shows when I was a kid or going to see some music when I was a kid and then eventually those venues shutting down and it being yeah. this kind of cathartic process. Um, 
was music you said music was a big part of this for you too growing up it was huge it was huge and i look back and realize that i owe such a debt to you know the the independent music that i think started rolling you know this idea of punk rock being intentionally sort of like outsider art that lived outside the mainstream that started in the 70s and then moving on to you know college rock being like a distribution system where people could find non-traditional stuff the bands that i look back to you know thinking about how like black flag toured relentlessly slept in church, minor threat a lot of these bands that i think really built the infrastructures of being an independent artist i feel like i won't say i was the first by any means but i was I, I definitely maybe took one of the biggest swings at emulating some of their attitude and some of their infrastructure and i never forgot my first punk rock show ever i was in uh eighth grade entering is it summer between eighth grade and ninth grade i'll never forget just the feeling of shock that the people on stage were only a few years older than me and they hadn't asked anyone's permission and it didn't necessarily sound great but they also they had their t-shirts and they had their records and their tapes for sale and they just went and did it and i just always had a little bit of anger in me and always found that to be quite inspiring and i really thought a lot about music when i was building my show on public access I thought about music a lot more than i thought about comedy actually and you know as i as i was feeling these stresses about friends of mine getting these mainstream gigs and me just whiffing on that hard had to really reconcile and say it's so arrogant to be mad about that because my friends are getting sitcom jobs and i don't watch sitcoms and that's not a judgment i'm not rolling my eyes millions and millions of americans love them and that's beautiful i don't watch them so what am i exactly searching for to want to be on one to be on a type of entertainment i roll my eyes at friends of mine you know getting on SNL i almost got a writing job at SNL at one point it devastated me i didn't get it but again no offense i have friends who worked there you know i've seen brilliant stuff come out of the show i don't watch it i don't watch it it's not for me so i'd sit there and really realize i'm i'm probably betraying my own values or my own ethics chasing these traditional versions of success i never once locked in with a band who played stadiums i wanted to be in a vfw hall or a church basement i wanted to look them in the eye i wanted to be there with 30 other people feeling like i was getting something personal so i had to kind of pump the brakes on my own ego and start building entertainment that felt like that a lot of your work is is refusing to just stick to one genre of just capital c comedy it feels like you're really trying to pull together all these different places for better or for worse for better or for worse because it makes it very very hard to define. You know, it's kind of hard to get momentum going when no one can quite explain to their friends what you like, oh, you got to check out this show where they, you know, the, the most famous episode we ever did, we we wound up putting the whole premise was we put a human being in a dumpster and people had to call up and guess who was in the dumpster. And that doesn't sound totally appealing to someone who likes how I met your mother, you know? And I get it. And I get it, but it is hard to describe and hard to uh hard to latch onto but i think for a person of a certain mentality it feels like something that maybe makes them kind of like pump pound their chest with a little bit of pride that 
that there there's still some strange stuff that exists. Yeah, you mentioned the artistic director at UCB, Anthony King, and he said that you're, you've become an adjective for for weird. <laughs> there was a stretch. There was a stretch in New York where uh, where the phrase, a Gethard show, had gone beyond just the st- show I was staging and people being like, yeah, I kind of want to do like a Gethard show thing. Where, and that would invariably mean like, we're going to set up four kiddie pools and fill them with pudding and the whole audience has to like dive in there looking for a key to a safe that and it would always be some like elaborate nonsense and my name and sometimes i'd hear that stuff and i'd be like oh that's awesome and then sometimes i'd be like oh my that's what my name is getting attached to now all right all right decade in this business and that's what it's come to all right (laughs) and and in mixing all these different styles and and you know i think often mixing drama with comedy or tragedy with comedy uh you know eventually leads to Another huge highlight in your career, career suicide on HBO. Yeah, that that that's outside of character acting gigs. I would say that's the thing I've spearheaded. That is is the most likely that you have actually heard of. If you're hearing this interview, it was a special on HBO where I talked pretty in depth about um, my mental issues and some flirtations with suicide. And yeah, that was that was a big one. It's probably it's it's a I'll, I'll probably never do anything I'm more proud of than career suicide. Did career suicide always have a confessional style from it from the earliest invocation of it? Yeah, I well my my stand up in general does. When I started doing stand up, I very much gravitated towards the storytelling style, not really set up some punchlines. And you know, thinking about storytelling style, someone I linked up with was Mike Birbiglia, who I think if 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 you follow comedy, I think he's probably one of the people who's most known for sort of fleshed out stories, narratives within his work. And I'd been doing comedy a long time, but I went to Mike. I saw him one at a festival. We were doing Bonnaroo together, and he saw me perform. He said, dude, you're getting a lot better at stand-up. And I said, if you need an opener, I'll do it. And I knew that I was humbling myself because I'd already been around for, you know, over a decade. But I also knew I would learn a lot. And I'm a big fan of getting out of my own way when it comes to ego. So I was doing it with Mike and, and uh, telling these confessional stories on stage, you know, in my own work and then opening for him. And we had this night where we were driving through the middle of the country in between two of his shows. And he was like, I've, you know, you mentioned this depression stuff in your work. What's the most real it ever got? And I told him a story I had told probably less than a dozen people in my whole life, which was about a time that I, I was in a car wreck. Um, and it was it was something that I, I knew was happening and allowed to happen because I thought it was a good way to, you know, to pass away intentionally without being judged. And I told him the story. And he just, I'll never forget, we're driving through Iowa or Kansas or somewhere, and he just pauses, and he's like, wow, that's hilarious. you got to tell that on stage. And I was like, that's the darkest, saddest thing I'm, I've ever been through. And he's like, if you can connect, if you can connect with that, it's going to be something really special. And kind of made it clear in the course of that conversation of it, it might be something that people connect with in a way that, they're not getting elsewhere. And that, again, I always think back to when I was 13, 14 years old, and then again when I was 19, 20 years old, and I was terrified of this side of myself. I, did, I couldn't find much of anything that spoke to it. So 
if I can make the thing that speaks to it and there's someone else out there who feels lonely, scared, sad all the time, lonely all the time, if I can just send something out there that lets them know, hey, there's someone else out here who understands, it would actually be very selfish not to. And was it challenging to kind of have to relive this over and over again? Because you're performing this oh, over and over. It was the worst. It was, it was hard. It was hard. I did it. I workshopped it for uh, well over, a, I think, about a year and a half. And then I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival where you go and do it 29 nights in a row in Scotland, like a country where I know no one. And then I did it off-Broadway. And when I did it off-Broadway, I was doing it six, seven, sometimes eight times a week with the matinees. And... uh there was a really sad stretch where my wife was out of town. She was working on the road in her own right. She's out of town, and I'm getting up on stage eight times a week telling jokes about the time I tried to kill myself. It was hard. It was hard. It was hard. And then I beamed it out to the world on HBO and uh, felt immensely proud to get there, but was also quite happy to move on. And... My my own relationship with that piece moving forward has been very difficult because it's opened the floodgates to having to think about it all the time from my perspective and other people's perspectives. But, yeah, I definitely felt like, not to be too dramatic, but I felt like I bled a little bit for the sake of the greater good, and I can't... It left some scar tissue. Was it surprising to see the reactions to the show? It was. It was. It was really eye-opening. I mean, I had people coming up to me saying, I've never told anybody I'm depressed, and that's the first the first I've ever heard someone talk about it where it rings true to me. And I had people telling me, I'm going to go get help for the first time, or I'm going to go get back on meds, which was amazing. It made me feel again like, man, I bet if I had this when I was 15, I wouldn't wouldn't have suffered as much. And the ones that were more meaningful, sometimes people would come up to me and go, I've always thought my kid was just a dramatic baby about stuff. But I'm realizing, no, I have to I have to take it seriously. You know, had someone who told me they had a kid who was only seven or eight years old who whose doctor was trying to prescribe the meds and they were resistant and rolling their eyes at it. And they said, you know, I don't know if we're going to go that route, but we're going to take it more seriously, you know. Had some people tell me, would say things like, you know, my brother took his own life and it was really hard to watch your show, but I, th- I think I maybe understand how he's feeling more than I used to. And to hear people say things like that in a positive way um, made me feel uh, good. And a- as you can hear from my long pause, good in a layered way that has a lot of confusion behind it. But ultimately, I felt like, you know, I'm, j- I'm pretty content that at some point I'll be on my deathbed and I'll know that I at least tried to do my part to make the world a little bit easier for people for whom it is often hard. I'll feel good about that. I feel like you really flew with that with Beautiful Anonymous, your podcast. You know, it's you, you mentioned earlier that it's so hard to describe a lot of the stuff you do. And there's this kind of amazing moment in your career where Beautiful Anonymous comes out. And it's actually kind of remarkably easy to explain what the show is. Yeah, finally. I did a thing that... Someone can explain it in two sentences and their friend will go, oh, that sounds cool. Finally, something easy. Yeah, it's a podcast where I tweet out a phone number and whoever calls, we pick one person and then I talk to them for an hour. And they don't tell me their name and that way they're allowed to feel some freedom to share and I just can't hang up for an hour. And that's it. 
an hour-long phone call from an anonymous person talking about their life. Nice and simple and clean and easy. <laughs> I mean, this, this show really feels like it's a continuation of career suicide almost to me. In a lot of ways, yeah. Um, it, I remember early episodes, it really felt more like kind of a straight comedy podcast. Do you even consider it a comedy podcast anymore? Uh, no, no, and that took a lot. I had to reconcile that. It was it was featured on This American Life, and they they um, put out an episode that I think was more much more serious than funny, and that meant that all the people who found it through that show, and I'm so so incredibly grateful that they spread word on it. But all the calls coming in were serious, and but again, I had to realize it's not about me. It's my insecurity that this isn't reflecting that I'm a comedian, that I was very insecure about it, but insecurity gets you nowhere. And I had to realize it was something that meant a lot to people. And when I take a step back and look at it, you know, I look at the the Gethard show, which was so weird, and Career Suicide, which I poured so much work into, and Beautiful Anonymous, and, and I think the thing they all have in common is that there is a real effort behind all of them to say, you are not alone out there. Like, you know, all of them have that, and they're just poured into containers of different shapes. Was there a episode of Beautiful Anonymous that made you realize that this is the direction the show's really going in? The first one was a guy who hated his job and was sitting in his car. He, I'll never forget, he was uh, working in a place called Bank Tech, which I thought was a hilariously grim name for a job that you don't, if you don't like it. And he was talking about how he wanted to move on, but he was scared. And he was, I, I convinced him to just start shouting as loud as he could to vent his rage. And um, I mean, so many of the calls just blew my mind, you know. One where someone told me what it was like to escape from a religious cult. One that I think has been massively impactful on me was a mother who called from the waiting room of a hospital because her daughter was awaiting results for some cancer tests. Calls where people talk about their sexuality and where I feel very proud knowing like my show there's probably some people in the world who the first time they ever heard a trans person tell their own story in their own words was on my show there's one that I think was really eye-opening where in uh, early 2016 we had a call from a lady who was planning on voting for Trump she was very very enthusiastic about it and could not explain why and this was an era where I was going he's you know I was very respectful but I'm like he mocked he mocked a reporter for their disability and she'd go, Yeah, no, I can't get behind that. I'm like, Yeah, but he he makes immigrants feel like they're gonna get killed. He's whipping them up. Yeah, no, I don't like that part. I'm like, I like that part. And I I always think back to that and I'm like, Oh, I wish that I wish that some democratic strategists had maybe listened to that episode because I think it was an early canary in the coal mine of, of this sort of uh unrelenting support for for a, a guy who had some major flaws. I don't know. A bunch. A bunch. I'm always blown away. The answer is that I, ne- I never cease to be amazed by the stories I hear from regular people on Beautiful Anonymous. Never. Your background in improv really kind of ties it all together for me. It makes it... I think so. Give it an extra spark, I think. Yeah, and it's funny with Beautiful Anonymous, the, oftentimes the people on the phone don't realize I'm just, I'm playing by the rules of improv. Like I got to a point where I'm cocky about very few things, but I was a very good improviser and a very good improv teacher. And all those skills are still there. And, and as far as listening, I'm, 
I spent about a decade training myself to listen harder than people normally listen. And a lot of times on the show, I sort of internally giggle because I'm like, oh, we're just, I'm just the straight man in a comedic scene. But it's not a comedic scene. It's a phone call about something grim from your life. But I'm still playing by the rules of being an active listener. Do people more often or less often know the game that's happening? I'd like to think they don't. I'd like to think that it's it's a show that I think on at its best day, people would listen and go, oh, anyone could be the host of that show. But if they sat down to actually do it, they'd go, oh, this is actually, this is actually a, a tightrope to walk. And I'd like to think that I hide that tightrope part of it as often as possible. If only because, A, I think that that's a reflection of, of skillful entertainment that you don't see, you know, you don't see the gears. And also I think it makes the caller on the line feel safe um, to know that there's somebody really locking in with them and, and they don't need to, they don't need to see the strain of any particular training or strategy I have. They just need to feel safe in conversation with me. We've kind of entered an era with comedy where there's become this huge backlash against political correctness in a lot of ways in the comedy world. And I see you kind of as a flag bearer for earnesty and and sincerity in a lot of ways. Do you see yourself in that way? I do. I do. But I'd also like to think I'm not not out there criticizing other people who aren't that. And I just don't understand why sometimes it's viewed as weakness— to be vulnerable in your work with comedy. It's uh, baffling to me. And I'd like to think that maybe I've, I've helped carve out a space. And I'm certainly not the only one. There's people, you know, people I really admire, you know, some of the names that come to mind right away, Maria Bamford, Tig Notaro, people have really put some stuff out there that's personal and raw and real. Mike Birbiglia, again, I, I bring his name up. He's been a great influence on me. Like a lot of people who doubt it, have done it. And I'd like to think that I'm a part of that. And just the week that we're recording this, I got crushed by another comedian who called me out hard on a podcast, and, and it wound up, uh, it was one of a few things he said that that made some national news, and I did not appreciate being sucked into it. And all I've ever done is worked hard and tried to be honest and tried to connect with an audience who's looking for the type of values I bring to my work, and I don't ever want to apologize for that. And it maybe will make me forever live as a little bit more of a niche artist or a little bit more of an underground artist, but I'd rather connect with 200 people who identify with the idea of being earnest or vulnerable or sad at times than a football stadium full of people who don't. And God bless all the people who can sell enough tickets to sell a football stadium. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's good for all of us that there's that many options out there. But, yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm an outlier for being earnest. And sometimes I feel like within the comedy scene I get judged pretty harshly for it. But all I do is work hard, and I can't apologize for that. Do you think comedy is reflective of society at large? I will say that having been around the New York comedy scene for 20 years, I have found it increasingly strange that it feels like comedy has become this sort of like bellwether that's a societal predictor. If you look at the downfall of some of the, you know, some of the most popular comedians of their era, clearly kind of were a precursor or an early part of the Me Too movement. You can look at how people talk about things like 
race and gender and there's so many think pieces about what comedians say and do about this stuff and I I go back and forth because on some level I find it very strange that an art form as disposable as comedy is a thing that people get so worked up and mad about but there's also a very I think a very strange sign of the times too where a lot of there's you know there's a lot of comedians that I think feel very genuinely committed to being woke for lack of a better word there's other comedians who I think are very much like no political correctness is the enemy of free speech and those are conversations that are just so prevalent across the board culturally right now that it, it's just so odd that comedy is a battlefield for all these sort of societal changes to me and I think the main thing I walk away thinking is is that comedians have every right in the world to say what they want and experiment and they just have to be willing to take the consequences for that. You know, I do think that in the course of comedy, going back, I would say probably Lenny Bruce being like the first name that comes to mind for me of him, you know, him taking on censorship, Carlin taking on censorship, prior taking on, you know, I think so much of, you know, what was happening in the 60s and 70s as far as racial movement in society. I feel like comedy has certainly had its moments where it it does maybe crack the veneer of traditions as societal change happens, but it is a particularly tumultuous time in comedy where it has come to represent something for people and, and constant turmoil and, and think pieces and lack of, you know, just, just a very, sometimes a lack of responsibility within the comedy community to take ownership of that and... Very strange. And I have to say on my level that in 20 years of doing it, I, I don't know if there's been a time where I, I have have sort of felt less certain of the footing of, of what it means to be a comedian. And I just try to stake my claim and do my part to make work that I'm proud of and that I think represents something good and try not to judge other people for what they do. And I just hope that by doing what I do and leading by example that I can make some work that makes people who share my values feel like they have a they have a comedian they can go to when they want to laugh. Again, another another rambly answer, but that time at least it was a legitimately confusing question because being a comedian right now, it is weird. Thank you for that. It's weird. That could have been the short answer. Yeah, man, it's a weird time to be a comedian. That would have been the short one, but it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot to think about. And it's a lot to think about what your responsibilities are. Should I still be performing at clubs that put up people who have, have, have you know, caused some news for, I think, some, some really uh, not good stuff, to say the least? Well, if I walk away from those clubs, I, I, there was one night I was at one of the clubs and a female performer was like, well, if a guy like you leaves, I'm even more alone. I'm not in a position career-wise where I can leave. So I'm going, well, what does it mean? How do, you, how do you navigate all this? How do you try to be someone who puts your head down and does the work and is proud of being able to do what you do? while also maybe have some mix, having some misgivings about some of the attitudes, both from within and without. Very strange times. This is sort of a tangential 
loosely related, but, you know, a figure like Morrissey, you know, who I know you're a huge Smiths fan. Yeah. But he's also a complicated oh, figure. It's, been getting it's, harder you know, it's getting harder and harder. And harder. Yeah. You know, I'm also a Smiths fan, so I can relate, but how do you how do you mesh with that? How do you how do you do you, do you, do you kind of do you subscribe to separating the art from the artist? It has become more difficult for me. Even even you right there. Let's all point out very crafty. I am a Smiths fan. That's a and that's a delineation that a lot of people a lot of people will right now say I'm a Smiths fan and not necessarily phrase it as I'm a Morrissey fan. Um, you know, I've been very public. A major running through line in career suicide was that I was singing Morrissey lyrics and talking about how he was the musician that got me through a lot of my dark nights. And I've been so proud that people have watched that special and said, well, you wound up doing that for me. And I always felt like that was in some way honoring an artist that did have a profound influence on me. And now you turn around and read quotes where he says things like, yeah, people just want to hang out with others of their own race. And I don't see what's wrong with that. And I, I, don't, I just don't see how that's doing the world any good. I don't see how an artist who for a few generations of people who were depressed, people who felt like their sexuality made them targets, people who felt bullied and picked on, that band in particular was one that made us feel like we were allowed to be proud of who we are and maybe even throw some punches back by standing up and saying who we are publicly and proudly. The idea that he's now the guy saying that, saying he had the other one about why was that kid alone with Kevin Spacey anyway? That's bad parenting. It's like these are statements that make it harder and harder to uh, to reconcile. And I know I know that he probably, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking about getting my tattoo removed. I don't know. It would be such a sad day if I did, but I have a son now. I have a five-month-old son when he gets older and says, who is that guy? Or he just goes and Googles him. Is he going to say, do you believe in that stuff too? And I don't. So I think I've learned a real lesson about um, the difference between being affected by an artist's work and maybe putting that artist on a pedestal to a degree that can come around and bite you. You know, I think something that is really cool about your work, though, is you've always been kind of breaking down those rules around celebrity too trying to trying to and some of that i think is just outright anger that i'm never going to be in the club you know like <laughs> my show to, my show bombed out on cable and i'll say too some bitterness like the year career suicide was out i was i was i was really hoping that it would get nominated for an emmy it was on hbo so i felt like i had a chance and and not so i could have validation but because i was like man if if this if this story can be told more places, I think it will do more good. Um, not so I can sell more tickets, not so I can have more attention. Just get, and, But I realized, I was like, man, I, I thought that one was good enough to at least get a nomination, and it was on a platform that often does, and I just had to realize at some point, I'm not in the club. I'm not in the club. And uh, it's, again, another moment of feeling like it would be arrogant to feel like I get to be invited into the club now because my work, like you said, I've needled that celebrity culture. I've tried to poke holes in how ridiculous it is. An era of reality stars and Instagram influencers. This is not, this is something to roll your eyes at. Work, you know, entertainment that feels so often like it's just being spoon-fed to us an easy way. 
I don't mind that people sometimes say my work is impenetrable to them. I don't mind that there's so many comments on the internet from people making fun of my old TV show because they don't get it. I don't want those people to get it. That's fine by me. So I can't then turn around and be bitter that I'm not in the club when I've spent most of my career standing outside the clubhouse throwing rocks at it. It's not a surprise that I don't get invited in, that they're not like, hey, come in, have a, have a drink and a sandwich on us. Like, No, I've spent a lot of time kind of angrily in my own way saying it's an artificial world that is unhealthy and I don't like it. Well, you also can't time, you know, you can never match up with whatever people decide as prestige or decide as award-worthy and you can't line up with it. But, you I know, know. Uh... I know this. <laughs> I, I will say in, in, in another response to your last question about poking holes in it, I, I, I do feel like two of the fan bases... My if I if I could combine the, the different circles of people who like my work, but the Gethard show is all millennials and Beautiful Anonymous, a surprisingly large number of the people who follow that are um women, you know, in their thirties, forties and above. And I do feel like those are two groups that feel perpetually unlistened to right now. And I am proud that my work is embraced by people who feel like they're not listened to. Just people who feel like they're maybe they have eyes rolled at them all the time. That's who I want to entertain. I don't need to entertain the people who want it to be easy or who want it to be mean. I just don't need it to be that. I don't want to make that stuff. And that's fine if that means that I <laughs> have a harder time paying my rent sometimes than someone of my experience level should. That's fine. Do, do you see yourself doing a project in the future that doesn't have your face on it or doesn't have you as a subject matter? Yeah, I'm done with that. I, I, again, I think that's the type of thing that catches fire in your gut in your 20s and that in my 30s I felt like I needed to get over the finish line. But I don't... No more books with my face on the cover. No more shows with my name in them. I'm very happy to fade into a more happy obscurity. I think a lot about pulling a J.D. Salinger that, you know, a lot less people will care about, but I think a lot about moving to the woods and giving up on it, and um, especially in relation to the questions about the current state of the comedy scene and the divisiveness that surrounds it. It's just, I just wonder if it's for me anymore. So the thing that is most exciting to me is, you know, doing things that, A, are small and personal to the people who find them. I love Beautiful and Honest because of that. I feel like it feels like once a week you get to have a conversation that, that is sometimes in many ways with me and this other person that you're included in, intimate. I like the idea of smaller intimate stuff. I also like the idea of of continuing to find the up-and-coming artists who are still driven, who do still have that fire in their gut. Anything I've had to prove, I think I've proved it. And I don't know if that means I'm just going to fade away. But if I do, I, I will do so very contentedly. But I still see young artists that I'm so impressed by. So impressed by. And it makes me so happy to shout to the hilltops about them. Like, comedians I love right now. Like, there's Carmen Christopher, Martin Urbano, Christy Cielo. There's a girl who just moved from Chicago named Megan Stalter, who I think is so full of joy and so brilliant and... I still get so happy and so excited to come across people who are so driven to do interesting work in their own way. And that still gives me so much happiness and so much joy. So I'd rather 
I'd rather spend my time and energy telling the world about other people now. Because also, I'm 40. You don't get to be cool when you're 40. You know, <laughs> like, I'm not going to be the hipster. I'm running around on public access and whatnot anymore. Like, I'm I'm uh, realistic enough to know that. So I'm happy to fade away. Happy to fade away. Figure out what the next thing is. But let it be more low-key. I've done... I've. I'm tired. I've done a lot of work I'm proud of, but I'm awful tired. But there's also something to be said for, you know, gracefully knowing when it's time to let someone else pick up the torch and run with it. That's another thing I think about. Career Suicide came out, what, three or four years ago? And I'm very happy that I think this con- it felt shocking when it first came out to hear someone talk about suicide that publicly. I don't think it feels as shocking anymore. I'm proud of that. My show, when we first went to public access, felt very, very progressive and forward-thinking. But the writer's room, the kids who, you know, it was me and three other white guys who met every weekend to plan it. It felt very, very progressive and different back then. Like, it was championing stuff. I'm also aware that in 2019, maybe a guy who looks like me and is as old as I am maybe should take a little more of a backseat to younger artists who have other things to say. I don't know if I matter as much as I did. And that's fine. That's good to realize. It's fine. I swear. I swear I'm okay with it. <laughs> <sighs> well, thank you so much for opening up about that. Um, last question. What's your favorite New Jersey body of water? Oh, wow. Finally a question <laughs> that's waking me up out of my phone. My favorite New Jersey body of water. There's so many good ones. I mean, the Jersey Shore up and down. The, I mean, the Raritan River represents a lot to me as a Rutgers alum who was not happy there. Are there any? I have, my favorite New Jersey body of water. There's. I tell you what, I've been looking at houses that are on lakes out there. That might be my J.D. Salinger. There's a couple <laughs> lakes. I'm not going to name them because I don't want people bothering me. I don't know. I will say, too, there's a brook that runs along the bottom of my street that I grew up on, and I have said publicly that I would like my ashes scattered there. So that it probably has to be the brook at the bottom of Allen Street in West Orange, New Jersey. I grew up on the same block as my grandparents, and my earliest memories, some of my earliest memories involve playing in this brook. And I still, if I want to be cheesy, I will say, I very often think about the fact that I make my work for who I used to be. What's the stuff that me and my brother would have laughed at if we found it on the UHF channels in our basement when we were kids who, you know, honestly got got bullied and felt like we didn't have a voice. So I, ha- I would have to say the, the brook at the bottom of Allen Street, West Orange, New Jersey. That's, that's, the, that's where I want my ashes scattered. That's the one. Well, thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Oh, please. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And again, sorry I ramble so much. I'll always find a way to apologize. <laughs> The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode, Christina Darko and Giovanna Drummond. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.